Podcast. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. And this is Rich. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of finding out all the things that you wanted to know about the game, but we wouldn't tell you. We, we wouldn't, and but now we're going to. Nosy people. You forced it out of us, folks. <laughs> uh, fortunately, this week we have Richard Tohoka with us because we are answering uh, questions from our various players, posters on Facebook, on the Yahoo group, on the TriTag Games forums, and anywhere else that someone could bend our ear. Now, interesting enough, the person asking most of the questions is, a, is one of our former podcasters, Jay Haley. <laughs> well... That's good because Jay, you know, went through a trial by fire uh, when he decided to start his campaign. And by the way, folks, the best way to come to, to find out what you really want and need to know about our games is to run a campaign of them. So we highly recommend that you guys get our books, our games, and actually run a campaign. Now, it doesn't have to be a long campaign. It could be only like five or six episodes, a short arc, but you'll really find out, you know, the questions that you have about the game that you don't understand. And by getting those answered, you may find that the game is even more amazing than we say it is. So, uh, so please go ahead and do so. And remember that TriTech Games offers free demoing service over Skype. So you can get your friends together. If you've never run a game and you want to try it, uh, get them together. Call, uh, call us up. Let, send us an email. And uh, we'll set up a time and we will run a demo for you of whatever game you want to play. So just go ahead and uh, give us a, a call and notice, whatever, so that we can help you come to realize how great the TriTech Games are. And if you're lucky, you may actually get a game run by Richard Hoka. That is a possibility. <laughs> Do I see pigs flying? <laughs> well, Richard, you know, when was the last time you changed your eyeglass? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it, could, it could just be, you know, floaters. <laughs> We're family, folks. See how we treat each other. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've had floaters since I was 20, so it's no big deal. Uh, anyways, uh, okay, so... I don't even want to talk about my floaters. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, the jacuzzi set uh, thus way... <laughs> 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 All right. That's okay. why you, that's why you got to wear a bathing suit when you're in the jacuzzi, okay? <laughs> All right. It doesn't have to be your bathing suit. It just has to be a bathing suit. I wouldn't nice. give a dollar to see that. Uh, <laughs> you dress them up, but you can't take them up. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's why we are on the other side of the giant of the internet. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, John compiled this list. Uh, and, uh, so we're, we're blaming him, but, uh, otherwise, <laughs> uh, we're going to go ahead and just kind of start through it, I guess. Um, I, I, I do think we should probably, uh, uh, combine all the ones that have to do with the, uh, Kimnar since, you know, but other than that, I think we can just pretty much work through it. So, uh, the first question, the commentary verse should be. That you know, you you go first, and then everybody goes, and then I'll go last because I created a lot of this. Oh, so you're gonna set us straight? I'm gonna well, if if it's necessary, okay. I think you pretty much got it intact anyway. All right. Well, I'm just gonna read the question, and we'll let anybody want to weigh in who wants to, and you're welcome to uh, come in anytime you want. So uh, the first question is: Are the old men universally fringeworthy? Or only at the normal rate, which is one out of a hundred thousand. Uh, oh, and, and and Paul Nunes actually followed up with a question on that question. So we might as well include that as well. Do we need to say uh, it before we answer it? Do we, do we need to hear that uh, question before we answer this one? Because it, it sort of ties. Well, I'm looking at it right now. Sounds like a no. Nah, we'll, we'll, we'll add it in afterwards. All right. Okay. All right. So, um, all right. So my answer that I posted when I saw this was that it's kind of a, I mean, there, there's probably a correct answer, but then there's also the practical answer. And, uh, and that is that since the old men are very much like other fringe aware races are aware of how the fringe path works. And they also, uh, do travel on the fringe paths a lot. Well, then they know about the fact that if you're pre if if uh, you have a pregnant woman or a female, because there could be other races than humans, and these are Neanderthals, the old men. Uh, if they are pregnant and they go th and they're fringe worthy and they go through the portal, their offspring will be, be fringe worthy because otherwise the portal would be uh, conducting an abortion, and that's apparently against its programming. So. That means that uh, if you are a fr a long-term fringe culture, by the a certain point, even if you don't know how to make everybody universally fringe-worthy, uh, then you you your people who are traveling the fringe paths, they've gone through the portal so many times when they're pregnant, you know that all your kids are going to be are going to be fringe-worthy, and then when they get together and and. Uh, the females uh, get together and get pregnant, and they go through. Then their kids are going to be fringeworthy as well. So over time, you're going to build up a fairly s substantial population of fringeworthy people, even if you are not universally fringeworthy as a race. So that's why I'm saying is practically the answer is yes, they're fr universally fringeworthy because we never seem to see them. Uh, at least the way they've been described, except on the fringe paths. And so in order to be on the fringe paths, they all have to be fringe-worthy. So by that definition, they are universally fringe-worthy. What are your ideas? Well, yeah, it does bring up a question. And I was thinking about this before the podcast. Um, and that is, okay, so when, are, when during pregnancy does this occur? I mean, if it happened right after conception, I don't think you'd be made fringe-worthy. We're talking at least in the first trimester, or I would think it would be after uh, at, at the minimum uh, when the embryo implants in the uterus, or but it's just a collection of cells. Then there's no different different 
I don't think the fringe path, you know, cares about the definition of life. I think that it says, hey, that is, you know, germplasm that is developing into a you know, another individual. Let's conserve it. Well, plus, plus, let's not let's <laughs> let's not go down that road because we're actually creating a uh, um, kind of a political rift. Yeah, here. yeah let's slippery slope, folks. Let's just gloss over that one and say it does. And, and being that being that they're you know an ancient people, they're quite tribal. Uh, they would even hold on to probably, I would imagine, some tribal ways. They probably have a um, you know a tribal ceremony. Where they, you know, ooh la, ooh la, time for her to go through the portal and 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 do the thing. So, yeah. well, they're not exactly primitive. They no. just choose not. They're more like Amish, well, radical well, Amish. But still, but they're holding on to their <laughs> Amish, Amish. Yeah. Well, then well, let, let me rephrase like the, like that. Like the mel- uh, uh, <laughs> Melanites. That's wrong. Even that's wrong too. <laughs> Mennonites. Gee, whiz. sorry if we're offending anybody. Mennonites. Let me, let me rephrase men that. Mennonites. <laughs> no, sir. Not men in They're not. Um... <laughs> just got you. Uh, okay. The political. So they're not correct. They're not primitive. They're just. Um, they're they're uh, tribal. You know, they they have a. Uh, Oh, what's the what's the word? I don't want to say superstition, not superstition, but because they use high tech. They yeah. use they use whatever tech they pick up along the paths. I mean, yeah, they may be in like sewn leather pants, handmade leather boots, but they might also have an M sixteen and a carbon a polycarbonate knife. I mean, just it's whatever tech they pick up that they can use. Yeah, but I believe that they're they they could still hold on to belief systems. They're animistic. They believe in that there are spirits and everything. So, yeah. And the other thing is, though, is that we never see a female old man. Absolutely, John. You never see an old woman on the fringe path, which yeah. means there are probably colonies out there, and that not in a good chance that not all of them end up being fringe worthy. Yeah. So you can end up with colonies built out of uh, old men and old women. Who are out on the fringe paths, but uh, like I said, you you very rarely see the women. That would mean there's a chance of running into a well, a colony group. Yes, I don't know what a female old man looks like, so it's possible, like the old saying about the dwarves, they may look the same. They just happen to be you know to the to the uneducated eye of a non-old man. Why do you think? The old men are on the fringe paths. They may not <laughs> want to put up with the old women. <laughs> oh, they're just—they're just bumpier, you know. We also know that they are masters of um, uh, of, of camouflage and disguise. I mean, you pretty much never see them unless they want to be seen. So, if, if the men are that you know squirrely and wily, I'm sure that the female are just as as, as uh, capable of hiding from view. Hey, you know what they say, the females, the deadlier of the species, they're better at hiding and sneaking up on you. That's the thing. You may even walk through a old man camp and not realize it, too. We've talked before that, you know, that it's possible to, uh, you know, create fabrics that are the exact same color as the uh, platforms. And you, you could possibly have one laying underneath a cloth. And unless you're laying down flat on the platform and looking, you may not even see them laying there. 
uh, there's lots of ways of of doing it. And we all and we also know, as we've talked about before, and doing surveillance on the fringe paths as such, that all you have to do is step off the fringe paths, and the air currents will carry you up. And you can actually, if you you know, without too much effort, you can actually hover in the air a fair distance above the platform, and nobody will ever see you there. So, and you can do that on the uh, pathways as well. By practice, you uh, you flip the uh, the pathway uh, just to make sure that you're not going to be bothered by anyone who's currently on it. Well, you can just slip around, just slip around the bottom side. Yeah, yeah. You see somebody coming on your side, slip to the other side. They'll never know you're underneath, unless you're in a really well, highly tra- trafficked area, and they would probably not go in a highly trafficked area. I mean, we don't know that much about their culture, Richard. I mean, uh, other than what you had in the book. So, I mean, do they have something against being in uh, um, highly trafficked areas? I mean, do they re- they want are they isolationists besides being uh, self sufficient um, uh, experts? They, they forget they have a pack of pangolins with them as well. Almost invariably, there's always pangolins with them. Okay. And Brupians. because the, the because the pangolins and the Brups are comfortable with them. So it's so you if all of a sudden it starts raining pangolins, <laughs> then there might be an old man ha- no. hanging up in the sky too. Usually not more than half a dozen. Help! 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 I think it'd be more like wee. <laughs> As they go bouncing off the, uh, you know, the canopies on top of your vehicles. Yeah. So, so what is it, Richard? Are they? So are they universally? Are they uni, are the old men universally fringeworthy, or is it the normal rate, or is it a different rate? I think it's it's going to be a different rate. That really, it doesn't in, in, uh, infringe on the storyline or the idea. Basically, some I've been out there a very long time. Others have been out there a shorter time. Maybe it's sort of a rite of passage eventually that the ones that are fringeworthy head out with the old men. Basically, you haven't seen an old man and a middle-aged man yet. So, figured the old old men was like how they looked. It wasn't they weren't actually old. Are they actually old? Most of them, they look old. But then again, they're Neanderthals. Yeah, that's my point. Are they really old? Um, some probably very, very old, and some probably not so old. So, in other words, it's just how they look. They're not actually. We yeah. can't actually tell their age by that. And of course, we know from fringe the the boosting effect. They could literally be thousands of years old, which means they would know information about back when the Commonwealth was still going. So that's one reason why it's always nice, a good thing to be nice to them because they might actually tell you something useful. You ask him what the most you ask him what the most most useful thing in the world is, and they'll pack up and say, "Soft tissue paper." <laughs> yeah. yeah. We oh that was that was another discussion we had a wa- a water bottle with a spray attachment will do just fine, thank you, and a and a towel. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. It was so, the nose have been around a lot longer than the uh, 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 the machining paper ability. Then corn yeah. cobs, papyrus. Uh, uh, no, 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 no <laughs> not corn cobs. Rock. <laughs> Do not. I mean, three seashells. 
three seashells. Right, right. Okay, moving on. <laughs> well, so let's go. Paul, now, Paul did ask, uh, are, so are the old men closer to the Termelon genetic template? I don't think so. They're, they're humans. No, not they're, at they're, all. They're, they're, they, yeah. are, they are human and or they are human stock. Yeah. yeah. They're hominid stock. Yeah. That's humans, and, humans and Termelons probably have a something genetic that's similar in everybody. We're all mammals. Yeah, I mean, a mollusk, we're 50%, you know, share 50% of the same genome. <laughs> well, heck, us and chimpanzees share 97%. Yeah, 96, 97, sure. Yeah. It's, oh, actually, I think it's closer to 98 now. But then again, chimps are very good at being chimps, and humans are very good at being humans, and chimps, after a time, do not equal human beings. No, no. Actually, that, that's the thing I like about the new um, the new Planet of the Apes movies. They point out that the violent apes are not the gorillas; it's the chimpanzees. Oh no, chimpanzees can violence all get out. Um, Richard Richard has had a year of primatology and came out of it. And if I had a shotgun and I was on an island and there was a chimp, a monkey, and an orangutan, I'd shoot in order the chimp and then the monkey. And leave the orangutan. Well, y'all remember when Michael Jackson had Bubbles? Bubbles tried to beat the crap out of him, and they had to put him down and give him another another chimp to be as Bubbles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ch- chimps are at, after five years. After five years, at about three years, they begin losing the the acceleration of learning that humans go through, and at about five years, they're stuck, and at about seven years. I wouldn't want to deal with them in any way, shape, and form. I, I got a chance to see them fairly closely, and uh, basically, they're they're bastards. Yeah, uh, monkeys <laughs> monkeys are just dumb and meaner than. And they're gr- and, and and they're a great shot with poo. But uh, gorillas are more human, and if, if you watch family groups for hours or days, and then if you watch, and if and orangs are even more so, orangs have a sense of humor. Which is wonderful. So, Richard, so Richard there's this uh, old rumor I remember hearing as a kid that the Monkey Island at the Detroit Zoo used to be closer to, the, used to be a bit wider and closer to the uh, people, up until the monkeys learned how to throw the poo. Yes. Well, then and the, the tigers also would back against the bars and spray the tourists. So oh. that was uh, that was an excitement. Yeah. <laughs> knew anything about the zoo or spent time there and uh, the apes were also mostly the uh, the gorillas and the uh, the chimps were after being locked up in little cages were a little psychotic so I would say clinically insane is probably the term you're looking for so moving on to the next question uh, it's okay it says uh, uh, the whole ramps on the alt platform to the other fringe path level thing. We know it's a stupid high perception spot DC, like a DC 65, but there is another factor level of crystal required to activate it. I know that it won't be any no low level key function. Why wouldn't it and, be a terrorist key? I mean, you know, think about terrorist key would be the key. I would say we would, we'd be able to turn it on. Okay. Let's go. Let's go back to the question on the. Okay. Uh, basically, during the development, we decided that there are multiple levels. Uh, 
if you want to give it a name, uh, you know, be up, down, left, and right. Forward, back. Yeah, forward, back. You're right, forward, back. And they'd be accessed through four more transit, uh, not, yeah, transit portals. Pathway portals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pathway portals that would appear in the middle of the ring. Correct. But those are very, very high function, mostly built for the trains. Yeah, but there are, but it does imply that there's multiple levels. Um, there's, there's bypasses. Yeah. The trains will, you can buy, you will bypass a level with a train because there's nothing there calling you. But if you do do a, uh, a, uh, a crystal a request for a train, and you you spin you spin the crystals. Basically, you will get a train that will stop. But we're not talking about trains, Bruce. We're talking about the about about, about the transit levels, right? Uh, uh, Richard may have forgotten that he signed off on this back when we did the Fringeworthy Bible. <laughs> uh, we we added this to the game, Richard. We've never actually published it in a in a book. It's actually we've only talked about it on the podcast. Um, and it is it was in the original Fringeworthy Bible we used in developing the D20 modern edition. Yeah, the, the, basically are, are different threads. We have the one thread that Earth Prime is on. It goes right, right, loops back back to back to T Prime. Then there's another one that does a loop, and there's another one that does a loop, and then another one does a loop. And these portals in the middle are ways of a, of a way to jump the loops from one loop to the other. So, in other words, there are there are five strands. There are there are five, you know, potentially more than five. Potentially more than five strands. No, there's just five strands. They just they just can link on more than one platform. Didn't okay. we say? Uh, didn't we say that one of the like the strands could be like the worlds are you know most of the worlds are human based worlds on the Earth Prime strand. That if you go to another strand, it might be. A majority of like Slarg worlds or Tazeel worlds or whatever. Did we mention that at all? I remember that being mentioned a little. It's not in the Bible, but we talked about that on one of the podcasts, and we did talk about this. That you know, if you the GM could say, "Hey, you know, the this strand could be homocentric, as it seems to be, but it doesn't mean the other, um, you know, the other strands can't be other centric." And you know that would be perfectly fine, but um, I, uh, as far as uh, the the question is concerned, you know, we we wanted a really really high DC so that it would be something discovered late in the campaign rather than early in the campaign. Um, and the second re, but we didn't want the crystal to activate it to be a high level crystal because I in particular wanted the fringe pirates to be able to have access to them, and that way the fringe pirates would always somehow manage to escape. For, uh, and nobody could quite figure out how they were disappearing. I mean, they would turn around and they'd run off toward the system platform or something like that, and then everyone and everyone would follow them. But when they went through, there was nobody there. And they're like, where'd they go? Did they go through one of the portals? They'd be checking the portals and going all the different worlds, but they would never find them. It's because they went through one of the portals. So we wanted it to be a low-level crystal because we don't want to put high-level crystals in the hands of the pirates because in case you actually did manage to kill off some pirates, you didn't want to suddenly say, oh, and now a high-level crystal has now dropped into the hands of your Fringeworthy, so now all the portals that you your GM wants locked down you know, uh, in, in his campaign are now going to be open. 
See, we, so it has to be a low-level crystal. And I think it was Trav, you, who suggested that maybe it should be an engineering crystal that activates it. Well, yeah, I, I would see that it would be something that, like, Schmert would have. It's like, okay, I need to, you know, I've got some bad guys coming after me, or I need to get, you know, because what is it? One one parallel Termelon engineer has, like, 50,000 portals to fix. Yeah, I forgot. It's a big number. Yeah. And let's say he might need something from another world, and he can just go up, okay, come back down. And yeah, I would think the engineering crystal would be the one to use for that. Because you wouldn't want just a turret, because I think there are a couple that are tourist levels. I don't think that you just want any Joe that can walk the fringe paths to know that. Well, it's not easy to find. Was the was the, that's why it had that DC is sixty five, so that you wouldn't be able to find it by accident. No, what I'm saying is it's not like the fringe finding function of uh, the fringe worthy finding function of most crystals, where you can get a really strong reading. I f- figured this one is a very light reading. I mean, you can feel it if you're if you know how to if you know what to look for. It's not going to feel the same. It's not going to sound in your head the same. But you know that way it, you know, it was. It was hard to find, uh, but once you do find it, then it's easy to easy to find after that. And that's why you know it was just the initial find that was really hard. After that, it's pretty much of a straight you know DC twenty spot check. Yeah, which anybody who has the ability to spot it in the first place is a slam dunk. Yeah. Now we did put, I did play off a couple of things uh, when I was when I was talking to uh, this is another Jay question too. Uh, one thing I pointed out was that thing we we said before is that there is a fine. Was it? There's a fine grid or a fine grid on the platform for for friction purposes, because it, it was it was if it's perfectly flat and you had the slightest bit of oil or something on your feet, you'd fall down. You would need to have something to, for for traction, some sort of gr- tread. Yeah, texture surface. It's like a fine grit sandpaper surface. Yeah, and I said to make it interesting, it's in triangular patterns. Uh, basically tiles of triangular patterns, they constitute triangular patterns, but they form hexagons, they form pentagons, other stuff. What you're looking for is the is the one equilar- equilateral triangle that isn't part of a hexagon. That's where you put the key, and it's right in the stinking middle, and it, it, that way, if it's perfectly smooth, it actually be fairly easy to find the, indent- the indentation because it would stand out. Well, unless it actually isn't an indentation, John, it's just a place where you put it. I mean, you just the same reason you get the hot cold thing when you've got the crystal. He says, "Oh yeah, I'm supposed to put it here." Oh look, it goes right in. And, but it's also like Paul pointed out, though. Once you know that it's there, uh, you can actually do a take twenty and with it, uh, what twelve hundred feet of string, you can find it. Yeah, once you know it's there. <laughs> no, yeah. no, even even you know, once you know about it. Yeah, so I'm saying what once you know that it's there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Someone tells you it's there. Uh, you basically can do at least in D20, you do a take twenty, and spend a half an hour laying out string from one side to the one side to the other. Then another piece of string across the other side. Where they cross is where you put the crystal. Yeah, I, I understand that, John. If, if once you know about it. Yeah. It's it's knowing about it, yeah. It's knowing about it, yeah. That's that's the big trick. If you don't know about it, players, then you can't find it. <laughs> that was the whole point. 
So it, it added this kind of mysterious uh, thing that you could do. And it also meant that uh, people like, you know, uh, Schmert and other type of engineers or old men and other people who are in with a no, if they ran to a, situ- a, a place where, you know, they've someone has decided to blockade the alternate pathway, you know, that goes between the nodes. This is okay. Nobody goes through here unless I want them to. All of a sudden, the old men are, have bypassed it. Oh, how'd they manage that? Well, maybe they did the little trick going behind the, the, uh, the, the transit rings. Maybe they did that. Or maybe they, uh, Instead, they just simply uh, uh, went up a level, walked over, went down a level or two levels, and bypassed the whole thing. That because, we, as we all know, nobody ever goes out to those star platforms, so those are pretty much uh, your own personal transit uh, deparkation point to the uh, to the forward, uh, back, up, and down uh, nodes. Now, if someone decides to build a firebase in the middle of the alternate platform. First time someone calls it up, that's it for the Firebase. <laughs> well, it would certainly push things around a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know if it would necessarily dist- – it's not like it's dangerous. Well, I mean, it, it definitely would, would, would move – you're right. It would move the, probably would push everything to the center. So all those jersey barriers you got set up for your, for your walls get shoved to the center. And if you're behind them at the time, uh, yeah, you're going to get hurt. Uh, I would have thought they would go the other way, push them out, away mm. from the center. But no, because you push it, you push it to the center because normally people are entering from the other side. Yeah, yeah, people don't normally enter from the center. You're right. But you know, if if you put the thing in there and the things pop up, it would make sense. You'd then turn around and and uh, and go through that side. But you know, just you know, it's it doesn't. You're right. It doesn't really matter which way it does it. But you know. Well, yeah. Well, I go to that side. I came out the opposite side on the other other platform. So, 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 you, so basically, what happens is is that uh, uh, for some reason, everybody leaves the fire base, you know, and they come back and they find everything stacked, you know, in the uh, 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 up to like a hundred feet high, you know, like the book stacking in uh, 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 Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, yeah, the vertical book stacking. In- I was thinking the chair stacking and and, polter, and polter guys. Oh yeah, there was that too. I remember that. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I I I always liked that movie because of their attempt at being scientific, you know, with with the, with the kids sitting down and put, having the little little helmet on and scooting across the floor by some unseen force. That was that was totally great. Yeah, I did find how they did how they did that scene though, basically. The, when they took the camera off, because they did it with one camera shot, they came off, they took the camera shot off, they ran in, took all the chairs out, then they brought in the pre-assembled stack of chairs and put it on the table. Well, you know, it, they, it, it can be the same camera shot, they just cut off the parts that don't look like the show. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, the... Uh, so, I mean, I... When I came up with the idea, like I said, I was trying to get around some of the, lim- the some of the specifically difficult limitations of the fringe pass. The fact then that they were only eight uh, uh, only eight feet wide, and so it was really a, a problem about trying to get around people who are blocking the fringe pass. I mean, you literally could cut the fringe pass in two by simply putting up a barrier, and I just and that seemed like something that would not 
happen because I mean, unless you know, it, it, you wouldn't be able to have any real trade going on, and you also would run in later on. You'd run into some real problems with in the later campaign where you had a lot of traffic because you literally have to like have the roads going one way for an hour, going the other way for the other hour, and even that was a real pain. So I finally said, you know, if they could go up a level and, the, and make the upper level the the, the one way going you know, to the left and the bot, the, the normal level one way going, going to the, you know, to the east or to the right, then they wouldn't have any trouble at all with their, uh, their traffic patterns. Unless of course they wanted to block it. Yeah. Now I, I think also it was cause we, we were sitting there with the problem of the French pirates. Basically if they picked, if they, if they tip, torqued off somebody enough, they just go chasing after them. And eventually they get caught. They would need some way to escape. And not just into a world; they need to escape someplace else. And the then the and the left, right, forward, you know, forward and back was the best way of doing it. Yeah, it's and especially since nobody in, in the early campaign nobody would know about it. And considered, we know that the pirates, by their definition of Richard put in the book, is that they don't give up any information, even under torture. Well, that was that was a great secret for them to have. So wait a minute. So hold on. The the pirates never give up any information under torture. That's what Richard says in his description of them. The original, but then again, well, there's there can be variances to that. I was gonna yeah. say. I mean, they're people. Eventually, you know, the right torture on the right person, they're giving it up. Or the right pay, or or the right payment, or the right incentive. True. Yeah, we, we did have a show on pirates, and one thing that came out of that, they're, they're, not all pirates are the same. Some of them are privateers. You know, they're basically, they're, they're on the platforms waiting for their home world. They're basically privateers. Then there are the raiders, the basic space, you know, fringe Vikings. But it really doesn't matter which type they are, because th- this, is a, this is a great secret to keep, because uh, it's, it's one of those things that's your ace in the hole. If you give it up, then you've really made it harder for everybody. And, and these people are clannish, and they have connections to other groups. And so, when you so basically, if you if you give up this information, you're also screwing over your your family ties, you know, because now they're not going to be able to do this, uh, at least not till later. Yeah, I mean, so these pirates are, you know third or fourth generation and they form their own band but there's their parents band their grandparents band and so forth and yeah there's this code they have of you know uh, whenever there's a need for a big raid they call they call the clan together and it's not just a team of like 20 pirates it's a team of like a thousand pirates coming through that portal and and when yeah, okay. Uh, but and because of the the French travel rejuvenation aspect, uh, all those different generations could actually look the same age. <laughs> so, Ooh. yeah. Grandpa, Grandpa doesn't doesn't have a lot of snow on the on the roof. Okay. And he I, and he still swings on my cutlass. Unless, of course, you don't live very long as a pirate. But, you know, I, we figured the pirates were pretty wily and they tend not to, uh, to pick fights where they can't win or there's a good chance of losing. They, they tend to go after the low-hanging fruit. So, I, I, I imagine they do the same thing fringe scouts do. They go through and, look for radio, and listen for radio. They hear radio, nope, too high-tech. Let's trade here. Yeah, it's possible. 
Mm-hmm. There's no reason why there's no reason why pirates can't also have a, a group that does normal trade. Sure. Okay. Anyways, uh, okay. So, Peter, do you have any more questions? Nope. Go ahead. All right. Sally forth. Well, let's skip. Let's skip the Kim. That we'll see that one for the bunch to the batch down to the bottom. So the next one is. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, who was this by? Uh, I think I can bring. Uh, it was about failure. Uh, we've been playing our campaign for a while now, and my players have tackled a lot of really difficult cases, always rising to the challenges I put put them in. But now we stumbled. But now they've stumbled really, really badly on a relatively simple case. I was speechless as mistakes, bad decisions, and terrible luck landed in, in deeper and deeper trouble. This was a beer of thirteen question. Now, now this case has basically failed. If there was a video game, uh, there'd be a huge sign, huge game over screen right now. I don't like to play with a safety net in my game. You, when you fail, nobody's there to bail you out. It makes danger more real and exciting. But in Bureau Thirteen, that doesn't really work. Your bureau doesn't just give up when cases go bad. So, given that my players have completely botched this case, how should I handle it? Regroup and go back and do it again. Yeah, it's it's it depends on how they botched it. Okay, if if everybody is in jail, then uh, you know, then I I would say that you know the there's the uh, Bell Book and Crandall, wasn't it? And they they would show up and get these guys bailed out, uh, and uh, these guys would d- then disappear. You know. Uh, oh, and the the question and answer was Nick Jervis. Thank you, Nick. Sure, thanks, Nick. Uh, so it, it kind of depends on what the on the situation, how bad, how badly they're screwed over. If they're all basically at this point, you know, tied to a wall, you know, and 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 you know, the the cultists are sharpening up their knives and they're about to kill them all. Or worse, or worse yet, zombies are walking the streets in front of people with cameras. Well, you know, it's that that we that's that actually is easy because you just simply say it's a disease. It's a flesh-eating bacteria. They look like zombies, but they're real people. Oh, how sad! Somebody is filming. Phil, somebody is filming The Walking Dead too. Maybe, but it's sometimes you know when you see somebody, sometimes it's a little bit you know hard to, to prove. But anyways, I, I say it depends on when he says they failed really, really badly. It comes down to a basic question: Is you say you don't want to play with a safety net? All right. So how much? You have to decide as a GM how much are you willing to do to extricate these players. What are you going to? How much are you going to provide them with resources? Because you know if they planned well, you know, and they gave themselves all kinds of backouts and and uh, things that they can do if things go bad. If they, you know, then they should be able to have invoke these recovery things. But if if they're really just Basically saying, look, we got nothing, you know, call the Bureau. Uh, we asked about that when we talked about going across the border. What is the Bureau willing to do? So, Peter, what's the Bureau willing to do? Depends on how good the agents are. I mean, if you've got if, – if these <laughs> if these are a bunch of, bunch of clowns and, and the risk is high, the agency might let them sit. Well, it says that they've done very, very well. They've been very successful up to this point. Oh. Sorry. Oh, yeah. The bureau's the bureau's going to get them out. I mean, one way or another, they're gonna um, they're gonna excise their their behind the scenes people, their connections. Um, they could uh, 
zap in with a you know one of their magical devices. Maybe somebody um, they get one of their their wizards or mages to uh, open a dimension door and pull them out of jail, like just physically break them out. Um, but yeah, if they're good, no, if they're good agents and they've been doing well up until now, I don't see the agency letting them go. Everybody yeah. screws up sometime. Sure. Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the failure, and what's the failure? I mean, too, you know, is the failure that they got captured, or is the failure that the giant ants are now attacking a city in New Mexico? I mean, what's what's the failure you're, you're trying to deal with, too? I mean, it, that really determines the result. You know, do, do the do the Rangers show up and start blowing things up because, well, that's the only way to deal with it? Are are you allowing your players the option of calling in uh, a team like the Vindicators? Uh, to to basically you know uh, an X team to come in and, and deal with the situation or a team of uh, uh, evidence dispersal people like we have in the uh, the specialists that we have in the D twenty uh, uh, advanced classes where they can come in and they basically can do a lot of stuff that your characters who are primarily investigators you may not have the skill levels that you need in order to to do what you really want to do. Uh, it's okay to call in experts to do things when you have a specific need for them. It doesn't make your characters any less uh, valuable because, the, believe me, those X-teams and those uh, uh, cleaners, they're not good investigators. They don't really know how to sneak in quietly, find out what needs to do, and, and quietly solve the problem without exposing uh, you know the population at large, either whatever the problem is, or to the knowledge of the supernatural. They're they're basically slash and burn guys. Yeah. I mean, I ran I ran one of the uh, one of the adventures that uh, that Richard created, the one with the the tree, the happiness plot. Happiness plot ran that one. My the team didn't fail, but they got to a point where they realized we're in over our head. And let's just call McAdams and let him deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's another X team that you can call. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it, 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 they didn't fail. They decided not to complete the adventure. Instead, they basically called for backup. <laughs> we saw we saw JP Withers called into a situation, and after that, something oh, burned yeah. straight through it, burned straight through his car. He said, "You handle it." <laughs> See, that's the thing is that he did. They didn't mention calling in JP Withers, so I really have to ask: How bad is it if you haven't tried to call JP yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, uh, he, we suspect he actually has at least one suitcase nuke someplace. You know what is what is a hey, Trav? What do you think of this? You're you're the you're our Bureau Thirteen master here. Well, I mean, if you want to go meta plot, that that's it sounds like this guy here, yeah, it was just the players just had a streak of just mistakes, bad decisions, and terrible luck. You kind of have to do, you can either just say, okay, you know, you're in jail, and then throw, you know, throw him a bone to give him an escape. Or, and I always have trouble with this term, the French term, Deus, Deus ex machina. Deus ex machina. Out of the God machine. Yeah, just have something like that for them, and just they they get them out, they get aside, and the NPC just says, "I don't ever want to see you again," and disappears. And then they can go back and do whatever they have to do. 
I mean, you really don't expect this to be a campaign ender unless, obviously, the flub-up is where the characters are going to die, you know, the cultists with the knives ready to go. But I, I yeah, Deus Ex Machina. I would never, never allow in any game I ran a TPK, the total party kill. I know GMs that pride themselves with that kind of thing, and it's just wrong. You always give the players a chance out. You have to, sometimes you have to squeak the rules and your and for your for better judgment. If you're a GM and you've never fudged a dice roll, you're a liar. Because <laughs> there are times where that happens. I've done it in the Maze World campaign because I knew it's like, okay, yeah, this just turned out to be bad, and there's going to be some, you know puddles by the time I get done. Okay, yeah, he missed you. Yeah. Oh, it, it happens. I mean, yes, you can have, like I have, when I was running Beer 13 back in the uh, 80s, have your team end up in, end up in casts and in hospitals after, at the end, but they succeeded. You know, this is using original rules, so yeah, they ended up, everyone ended up in body casts and crutches. I use uh, Steve Wallace drama, uh, clockwork drama deck in Fringeworthy and also in Hardwired Hinterland. And if you've looked at these cards, these are serious game changers. I mean, I've had a guy go pull out a card and says, okay, um, it says here that we get invaded by an unknown group who totally, radi- totally radically changes the situation. And he throws it down on, and I have to respond to that. I have to say, okay, my entire planned adventure now has a a new group that I suddenly have to generate and throw into this mix. I mean, as a GM, you shouldn't be afraid to do that. If you, if everything is looking, yeah, if everything is looking bad, that means that it's time to do something to change things up. Who was it who said, you know, throw dynamite? (laughs) Oh. No, it was uh, it, uh, was a Dashiell Hammett says if you get stuck, have someone get shot. Right. I mean, the point is, is that it's you know, as a GM, it's okay to suddenly go and throw in something that'll radically change everything. Bruce, you remember we have an entire deck of these we never released. Yeah. Uh, depending on how you flip the card, you get something, and everybody gets a card at the beginning of the game, and along with your experience, you get a card as kind of bounty points. And uh, we're, we've been talking about just putting those up free off the website, along with the new shield that just got finished. Cool. Yeah, so I, I'm just saying is that I think that a lot of times when you run into these situations where the players have basically found themselves run out of options uh, because either – and it, it could be because they lack creativity, but it doesn't sound like that's the problem here. It sounds like they've literally just kind of painted themselves into a corner, so you need to blow out a wall. And, and and just do it. That's perfect. Yeah, because um, you know this is a this is a world in which everything and anything can happen. And you're and even though you're in your little piece of the world, having your little adventure with you know uh, 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 psychic uh, Nazi clones from Mars, uh, it doesn't mean that something else isn't traveling across the the, the, the county, uh, across the state, running away from something else that just happens to barrel into your situation. It could happen, especially in a world like Bureau 13, where the weird get attracted to the other weird. 
Yep. And all stories are true. But we, we had a rule in our game back in the beginning, which was if you were a supernatural creature, you attracted the attention of other supernatural creatures just by your existence. And because we always had people say, I want to be a mage. I want to be a sound. I want to be the vampire. I said, fine. Just so you know, this is going to cause you problems. And so when the, uh, you know, the mage got off the plane and the tiki plant that w- uh, in, in the arms of the, of the lady coming off the plane from, from Hawaii suddenly shook, jumped itself out of the pot and started chasing him across the waiting area at, at, the, uh, at the airport into the woman's room where he tried to hide. And finally it turned, uh, with, with a little psychic help from another team member, turned out it was his mom reincarnated and wanted to know why he was rude, why he was wasting his life with his Bureau 13 nonsense. Trust me, that player was like, I never saw that coming. Oh. Uh, <laughs> we've had so, the, the one situation where the a one of the agents, the same thing, people kept coming to him and giving him holy knives and things and gems and books and things of with situations that they had already solved in previous games. The, uh, he, he became the, the magnet for everything that people were trying to help him and all sorts of magical stuff. And just, it, it got ridiculous after yeah. a while. Fa- yeah. Fa- Father Murphy of Team Fremont runs a uh, homeless shelter. About one quarter of his homeless are homeless supernatural. Yeah. So... Anyway, so don't be afraid to add in things that nobody realized was there. You know, the supernatural in the 21st century has gotten really good at hiding. So it do, you could have a lot of supernatural just hanging around the area in which you're in, but you don't, and if you have your curling detergents out every once in a while, you might say, hey, why am I getting this reading? And it could be because there could be another residential supernatural that's just minding its own business. Doesn't mean that supernatural can't get involved when the bureau gets into trouble. Maybe that supernatural got saved by the bureau sometime in the past. Maybe one of his relations or her, you know, children got helped by the bureau. And so when they see the bureau team in trouble, seeing knowing the signs, they'll step in, help out. Could end up with with other things like Murphy O'Grief, the leprechaun who decided to join the bureau and help them. <laughs> Uh, or if you're in Seattle, uh, that may also be Chief Seattle, because he's doomed. He's doomed to wander the earth as long as there's a place called Seattle, and there's no way to put him down. Right. So, so my answer basically is, um, is if they're stuck, then the, then your your adventure isn't weird enough. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We'll oh yeah. With this 100. The GM, yeah. the GM on this needs to simply. Add something to it. What was that? What was that? I just heard. I watched um, the wedding episode of Sherlock, and Mycroft said, "There's no such thing as coincidence because the universe isn't that lazy." <laughs> <laughs> uh, or that that goth dude you're look you're wondering about. It really is a vampire wearing SPF two thousand. You know, mm-hmm. sure. Just just mix him some uh, number, you know, black dye into it. Yeah, sure. Let's move on. All right. So, oh, it's another it's another J question, J Haley. Uh, take a Commonwealth city. This is fringeworthy. 
depopulated and abandoned for 9,500 years, about the start of the war, the, the, the Miller War. That was only 1,000 years. Well, it's been abandoned for... It's time accelerated. Fine. Let's, let's just do what he says, 9,500 years. What does it look like? Any clues? How long will crystal spires last when... Uh, a pile of rocks, unless it's very, very high-tech, and then there'll be some things left. In 200 years, you could barely notice there was probably uh, cities in North America. The wood would rot. Things would fill in. You'd have small ponds. You'd have some concrete buildings. Yeah. The, the best example, if you want an example of what it looks like after 200, 500 years, watch Life After People. Because that pretty much... Oh, yeah, yeah. Perky got showed me that, and that was a cool series. Okay, so how old is the Sphinx, Richard? How old is the Sphinx? Yeah. They think probably about 4,000, maybe older, but nobody's sure. Okay, so we do have some things that maintain their look after Mm -hmm. 5,000 years. Well, you got to remember, the Sphinx probably was recarved when they built the Pyramids of Giza. Yep, and Napoleon shot the nose off of the cannon. No, the nose was already gone. Nose was already gone, Richard. It was already gone by that time? Already gone. And pyramids, you know, if you look at the pyramid, basically the only reason why it was it survived because it was buried in sand. In fact, the worst thing we ever did to it was unbury it. Because now it's exposed to weather. As, as soon as the pyramids were abandoned security-wise, people stripped the limestone off, burned it, and used it to grow crops. So we didn't never saw the yep build other pieces out of it, but mostly they burned it. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers, this was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.